0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. If you enjoy this podcast, please do us a favor, subscribe, leave a review, and share on your network. As always, if you need to get a hold of the podcast for any reason, whether it be to get connected with a previous guest, recommend a future guest, or take advantage of our network, please email us at projectmedtechpodcast at gmail.com. Our episode today is another installment of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. In this episode of the podcast, Giovanni's guest today is Carlo Stimamilio, a partner in Allora Health's transaction advisory practice. In this episode, Giovanni and Carlo discuss the role of an investment banker and when to engage one as a medical device startup company. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Carlo.
1: Medical innovation starts with medical discussion.
2: Talking about the future what comes next with iJet MedTech. There we go. Recording in progress. So I wanted to welcome Carlo from Alira Health. And of course, no one can introduce themselves better than themselves. So I'll let him do that in a second. Um, But I wanted to start off by sharing with everyone why this podcast even exists. And um, I've talked to thousands of medtech entrepreneurs and investors and bankers around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's, there's no silver bullet or specific formula on how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. And so my goal here was to extract insights and, and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs and investors and, and bankers like yourself, Carlo, to help those who can benefit from the information and for generations of professionals to come. So the audience that will be listening in and watching this will typically be a mixed um series of people of experts and novices, but I wanted to extract your stories and insights and advice to share with with what I imagine is the first-time founder or CEO and has no clue what lies ahead on their journey of raising capital. And the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. So the discussion is going to be focused and mainly about when and how to work with an investment banker in the med tech industry. And that's really what I wanted to focus on here. So if you can demystify the, the, the essence or the purpose of an investment banker as this intermediary between the entrepreneurs or the companies and also the investors or the capital markets. That's really what I wanna focus on. But before we get into that, and also your, in starting with your background, I, I had um, two questions that I wanted just to start off with as a kicker and engage the audience, and we'll see where we go from there. But um, in your perspective, when you look at a company, especially what's an investable company, and also the progress attraction that comes along with that. Do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a medtech startup or company? And if so, why?
1: Um, to a degree. I think uh, people are definitely at the heart. Um, my CEO um, at a company event a couple of years ago, He was giving a speech and um, sort of thanking, uh, uh, you know, the team for the amazing job uh, they were doing. And uh, he actually quoted this um, from a mentor of his, uh, a very successful entrepreneur, uh, you know, billionaire, self-made billionaire investor. And uh, the the quote more or less paraphrased uh, was that, people are at the center of any successful venture. Right and money is a byproduct of that. If you have the right people, the right leadership, and the right execution team, money will follow. So I I thought that was very insightful, honestly. Uh, And um, you know I I I kind of operate uh, based on that principle. I think uh, people is at the beginning. Obviously, money is the lifeblood. Right. Uh, Without money, you don't go anywhere. Uh, and uh, this is not uh, a perfect world. Sometimes good people, good technologies, and good projects are uh, are not funded as they should. These are, this is part of the uh, inefficiencies of the market we live in, which is anyway relationship driven. So uh, I think there are um, uh, you know there are processes that can be put in place to f- facilitate get increase your chances to get funded, but obviously if you don't have the right the right team, the, the right leadership, you're not gonna go very far. Uh, and uh, we kind of, you know, when we choose uh, or, you know, get engaged with, with clients, you know, we, we always try to put significant effort to determine if these uh, in basic intangibles are there, right? And the uh, same way as they you know, seek the same type of support, in uh, when hiring a consultant or, or advisor, you know the people first uh, uh, aspect is paramount.
2: I agree with you, and and I think I and you can tell us the uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of my second question. So thank you for that one. But my, my second question is, um, and I think it'll be funny to know once investment banking is demystified throughout this uh, time together right now. But. It would be interesting to know if you knew what you knew now about being an investment banker before you became an investment banker would you do it all over again and why and if so what would you do differently or keep the same
1: it's a very interesting question i think uh i would um you know to answer i you know i want to say that i feel that as part of the my organization alira health you know i'm privileged to uh, do my job in a in a certain way that perhaps doesn't fit the stereotype and the standards of investment banking. Uh, first of all, we have an exclusive focus to healthcare, uh, not only med tech, also biopharma, digital health, and, and other uh, areas of of the industry. But uh, you know, you and this um, warrants a very specific approach to doing business. First of all, a mission of uh, uh, wanting to bring uh, technologies that improve patient's life. That's kind of the the driving uh, uh, factor, Uh, but also uh, to uh, appropriately lead, represent and uh, and advise uh, on business and and product development of medical companies and, and technology. You need to align a certain, um, you know, subset of very, you know, strategic uh, factor inherent to the to the space, the clinical um, affairs uh, realm, the value based uh, analysis of you know uh, pos- actually c- c- accurately positioning. A device for success and you know, for adoption by doctors and and hospital systems. Uh, you know uh, the at the very basic, uh, the you know, very foundation of the whole process. Identify the unmet needs and the developing technology that actually solve unmet needs and our doctors are going to going to use. So these are very detailed, uh, you know, uh, and very important things. Uh, that sometimes, you know, I want to say investment bankers don't really care about, right? The, the stereotype is that they're all focused on, on getting the transaction uh, completed. But if you work with early stage companies and you are invested in facilitating their development and getting them funded and getting them hit milestones and, and, and develop uh, products to, you know, subsequent inflection points. You really have to get get your hands dirty with all this. So uh, it's a long answer, but uh, I think what I would like to do different in my career is uh, get my hands dirty with uh, all that makes you know med tech complex, but also exciting, and uh, become even better at uh, you know understanding what makes. Uh, a medical device innovation project successful uh, or not, so that I could be able to, to serve my customers better when uh, it's time to raise money for them or help them uh, generate an exit. Uh, and uh, I have started my career as a generalist, you know, working on uh, industrial sectors before I made my way into medtech. And uh, uh, yeah, I perhaps would have loved to accelerate that transition early on in my career but we're here you
2: know every every learning experience is to be treasured and here we are now and we're here right now and and you're doing amazing and and once again thank you for being on here and this is the this is the point that I really wanted to drive home for our early stage entrepreneurs because even in my experience of working with early stage entrepreneurs which is really the predominant focus that I'm at and as you know every year that a company's in business has a higher percentage chance of failing, right? So there's a lot of startups that start, but the ones that actually get to an IPO or commercialization is significantly less. Um, And I get asked this a lot um, with early stage startups who are currently raising money. There's two questions or two parts of this question that I wanna demystify for everyone listening here. Um, The role of an investment banker, and I think you and I have talked about this before, the definition of an investment banker here in the United States versus anywhere outside the United States. Is it true that the United States is the only one that has a financial regulation behind the title investment banker being FINRA license versus that's the only person that can call themselves an investment banker here in the States. But if you can go into Italy, if you go to China, Australia, Germany, Israel, you can call yourself an investment banker, but it's not necessarily the exact same qualifications of what you have to go through here in the States.
1: Uh, yes, that's true. The U.S. has um, some prerogatives that are, are not present in uh, most uh, other countries. Um, uh, the FINRA registration is one of these prerogatives. Uh, uh, investment banking representatives, that's how they're defined, are uh, supposed to pass a test and accredit themselves uh, with FINRA, and uh, which is uh, the the you know the the body that uh uh, oversights investment banking activities and uh, works closely with sec to ensure compliance in and, uh, and good practices by broker dealers uh you cannot just become an investment banker taking this test you need to be sponsored and affiliated to a broker dealer so a company that is uh licensed to uh, perform certain services in, uh, related to capital placements, uh, Alira Health is, uh, a- as one of these licenses. And so at the beginning of my career, I had to take these tests and there are different, uh, uh you know, different kinds of, uh, uh, licenses, uh, you know, depending on, on the type of services that, um, uh, that your company provides, but, uh, uh, you so you need to have uh, be, be funeral registered to be able to uh, uh, represent uh, the sale of securities, um, and um, and so whether whether it's an MA and A or uh, um, a capital public capital offering or uh, a, a private placement, which is essentially a private deal of raising capital from. Uh, Pool of accredited investors or so professional, uh, savvy investors. You need to be, uh, uh, you know, registered as an investment banker with FINRA. Uh, let's say that uh, it is an important, you know, um, distinct, distinguished, um, you know, uh, factor, uh, you know, that separates those that are professional investment bankers from others that may be introducers. Uh, however our sector uh, especially in the early stage i want to say that um, it you know it sees it has a lot of uh, or you know stakeholders organizations that uh, do broker uh you know capital transactions and they may not be investment bankers the reason being uh, either they operate uh, with uh, investors and Counterparties that are outside of the U.S. and therefore are not subject to the same rules, or um, do not broker security-based de- deals. In other words, uh, you know, license deals or um, product-related, you know, partnerships, commercial uh, agreements. These uh, do not fall under the the regulatory perimeter of FinRA, and so anybody can actually, you know. Uh, do that kind of job and it's that simulates this part of the market with what happens internationally where as you said you don't need any any particular qualification if not a certain professional skill set and uh, and
2: reputation possibly to, to do the job and i have several smaller questions just to make sure we're clarifying the whole topic but and to give examples for the audience too so um this Other title transaction advisor, right? So if we make the distinction between the FINRA licensed investment banker here in the United States, which if they were to go represent a capital raise for a company, they would legally, and they're the only style of person legally able to um, take a percentage of the raise as their commission, right? Where the other person who's not FINRA licensed, that person is called a transaction advisor or a consultant and legally not able to take a percentage raise on the, on the capital raise, but is really more of like a, a consulting fee or something like that. And that's a real bigger distinction. And especially the reason why I want to clarify this point is because there's so many of these people who say that they can make um, introductions or help out early stage startups for their Series A or their seed money or their maybe their even Series B that's still a smaller amount. And... Um, and, and then typically they're not able to actually take a percentage of that raise, but they're maybe able to help them out, make introductions, but legally they're not. And I want to be able to clarify that point for anybody who possibly can get into legal trouble just to help them out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a good point. Uh, you know, having the, you know, being compliant is, is important. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as important for the, for the entrepreneur as is for the advisor.
2: Yeah. And, and, and going back to the point before, though, right, so the, the truest title or definition here in the States of investment banker having to be FINRA licensed, you could, you could live in another country and still call yourself an investment banker, and there might not be any licenses or things that you have to pass, right? That's right. That's a huge distinction. I think it's very fascinating. It took me a long time to find that out. I don't know why it took me so long, but I was interested once I finally did. Um, and then the, the other aspect, going back specifically to the capital raise, when, and we talked about this recently on a clubhouse, when, when does it actually make sense for a FINRA licensed investment banker to get involved in a medtech company on a capital raise? and And also- explain why and when it does make sense, whether it's the amount of numerical um, value to raise and the pushback, just to give a little bit of color as to, because there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are whether they're scientists or engineers or physicians or first time entrepreneurs in general who have never understood this world of raising capital. And you know they could be raising a $500,000 seed round. And if someone's reaching out to them for introductions or they think they need an investment banker, I mean, what is the real parameters generally speaking when an investment banker is most valuable in a med tech capital raise um, and when's the best time that a med tech company should use one?
1: Yeah so uh, this is kind of uh, my view and you know our kind of company policy uh, so more than uh, you know a, a meter of uh, industry standards but we think, uh, it's you know it, it's reasonable kind of a reasonable um, philosophy and uh, we don't we don't believe there is really a, a fit between a company uh, and uh, you, know, an, you know an investment banking organization for uh, financing rounds below 15 20 million dollars in the medtech space uh, in, in other sectors, uh, like biotech, for example, where even series A have much larger checks. Uh, the the time where you select an investment banker may be earlier on in the in the life of a company. But in medtech, let's say a, a $20 million round is already kind of an advanced stage of uh, of the startup, right? It, it has been met probably several. Uh, development milestones and you know, you're approaching the time where the company needs to uh, lead commercialization. So kind of a commercial round, that's when, uh, um, that is our threshold. Uh, why I believe it's a, it's a good idea is that, uh, first of all, uh, the size, uh, and the capacity of the round, don't forget that the investment bank is going to want to get paid. So a percentage of, uh, of that, those funds will not be deployed to create value for the investors. will will be paid out to the bank. So you need to have uh, uh, you know a sufficient value to justify the cost, uh, so that uh, you know the percentage of uh, uh, of the funds uh, that are uh, let's say deferred from the company's project is uh, is not too burdensome, and that that's the first. Uh, more uh, you know. In, intuitively, perhaps uh, the when a when a medtech startup graduates from being um, an R and D project, you know, with all the um, you know um, the host of uh, uh, activities from a clinical development or or regulatory development that you know continue to be uh, you know milestone of um, uh, you know, tech, technical value uh, creation. So when, when, when the, comp- the, the venture graduates from that mission into becoming a, a commercial stage organization, that's also when the original founding founding team uh, perhaps, uh, you know, has, starts to become a little less experienced uh and uh, they need to approach a, a different type of investors uh perhaps involve third-party managers uh, to run the project and um, and so involving third party also in your capital raise effort becomes more natural as you as they need to diversify the pool of investors increase their reach even globally uh, to be able to raise uh, uh, greater funds. And so all these elements sort of, you know, fit together to, you know, you know to justify involving, uh, involving an investment bank or, or, or a broker. Um, there are some exceptions, of course, uh, we, at the Lira Health we like to, to meet very early stage companies, almost at the idea stage. You know, we, we love networking with entrepreneurs uh, we love uh, giving uh, free advice and uh, making connections uh, pro bono, let's say, uh, because uh, first we're very passionate about innovation. Secondly, we want uh, you know we want to give opportunities to to young entrepreneurs uh, to to make it to the next steps, uh, be funded, and uh, you know in the long term those are you know relationships they may come back to us uh from you know, as clients you know, as, as more solid uh, uh, opportunities for, for business right so you know, that's kind of our mindset we rarely though engage formally on uh, representations of of our list of our listed companies uh the um you know where the, the exception for us could be uh if if our companies that are, have been very efficient to raise limited money, capital and build a lot of value. Uh, and so, you know, they maybe need only a fraction of their or what a Series B would be to really make it to the stage where they are eligible for MA. and uh, a Or um, companies where we have, uh, you know, we're, we're involved as advisor from a strategic point of view and we've had sort of a role to uh, enable some of uh, some of the of, of the early successes, right? And so we're intimately invested in uh, in you know in, in the success of, of, of the startups. And so uh, we can put in some more sweat equity and uh, and you know facilitate introduction to investors. Um, the big uh, um you know difference maker for us is the trust that we have in the entrepreneur and the company and the technology the amount of uh, diligence and uh, vetting that we've done uh, ultimately our currency is our reputation right uh, if uh, we represent companies that uh, are you know don't deserve being funded you know our network will start to think okay these guys are maybe they don't know their, their job so well. So uh, uh, it's true, you know, I don't wanna sort of uh, make a U-turn based on what I, I said at the, at the beginning of, of these uh, uh, comment, uh, but more than size and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, the financial parameters of the raise, the credibility and the bankability of, of the asset is, is really what what drives the decision process, right? Uh, For, uh, you know, as a a tool for your audience, I would still not recommend that uh, uh, young entrepreneurs or early stage entrepreneurs, you know, think uh, of hiring an investment banker uh, for the Series A as a must do thing. I do recommend that they network and they speak with uh, a multitude of influencers and uh, potential partners, including investment bankers, from the early on to learn uh, the mechanism of, of, of raising capital and uh, sort of vet who are the go-to, uh, you know, resources for for the later steps of, of their journey. But and you know, along in in these interactions, they may find ways to collaborate early on that's a recommendation I, I
2: would I would make and on that point especially on early on and in interacting with in, um, investment bankers we, we also talked about this earlier on too there's that stigma from the venture capitalists right or the investors um, with regards to early stage entrepreneurs leaning, on a third party to help them raise right it's a, it's a different situation if you have a warm introduction or someone makes an email and then the, the entrepreneur takes it from every step of the way after that right that's the difference if there's just a network but if an early stage entrepreneur utilizes a third party to go help them raise what does that typically signify to a VC or an investor? And then what is some of that pushback that we talked about um, on on how a VC might view that entrepreneur? What's the downside of leaning on a third party?
1: Uh, Yeah, so there is a stigma, absolutely. I think uh, this would be a great question for a a VC if you're going to have them on on one of these podcasts in the future. But uh, from my point of view, uh, you know, VCs have their network, they're very smart people. Uh, they have their sources of deal flow that they trust. So um, stuff that comes from other sources, they may tend not to give the right uh, attention or, uh, or the you know, right focus. So um, I, I think that's the real issue. It's not so much the bias that, uh, you know, if an investment banker is involved, they don't want to, they don't want to hear from. That may happen, you know, some, some uh, you know, there, there's diversity in the VC community as well, uh, but, you know, it's a matter of credibility, uh, right? If, um, uh, you know, we do, there are some firms that we, uh, investment, sorry, venture capital firms that we collaborate with, uh, regularly, and that we have a very active dialogue, and uh, we believe they respect our our judgments. And so uh, it's easier to to pass along opportunities to when you have that kind of relationships, right? So,
2: um, and I guess but- what I was more leaning towards on that objectiveness is, is for the early stage entrepreneur, once again, that seed round, or maybe even series A, um, Have you heard this before? Maybe it's not dealing directly with yourself as being an investment banker as a third party, but have you at least heard this stigma before where um, the investors may look and say, hey, listen, especially early on, you know, it's not easy, right? I mean, and we're investing in realistically the people um, and the trust of those people to carry this because the product's probably going to change two or three times anyways before it hits the market or at least have some pivots. So we're really investing in the people. And if the people doesn't have necessarily the grit or the ability to grind through and build the network and and raise that early stage capital, and they already have to lean on a third party, we don't necessarily know if that's the right people that we want to invest in. Have you heard of that stigma before?
1: I've heard it before many times. I've been through it, uh, suffered through it when uh, I tried to make myself helpful to early stage companies at times. but again, I think it should be taken with a grain of salt, right? Uh, um, as you said, people are uh, you know and are even more critical in the beginning when there's not a lot of hard value perhaps in the company. It's all about ability to execute on a plan, right? And uh, yes, there's the IP, there's the uh, clinical evidence that you may build around the technology, but uh, it's the people, all right? And so, uh the, the ceo the management team has to be on the front end of raising capital becoming uh, an evangelist for for their for their technology uh in, in some cases you know uh we've seen even high profile um, uh inventors and uh, entrepreneurs that come from the academia and uh, have a very uh this, you know distinguished technical background and they may not know a lot about the business side so i think uh the surrounding themselves with uh, professionals you know board members uh, or advisors uh you know, could be helpful um, that is kind of a, with the gray line that I, that i was trying to yeah. uh, paint uh earlier on but it's absolutely, what, what you said is absolutely true as a rule of thumb. Uh, you know, for Series A, up to the Series A, and even more importantly, at the seed stage, uh, you gotta do the, the hard work. Uh, it's very difficult uh, to hire somebody to to raise capital for you.
2: Yeah, agreed. Well, Whether then, they're
1: I Muslim mean, bankers or just introducers. True.
2: Well, and if we go back to the sweet spot, right? So like you said, greater than 15, 20 million. So for the, the company who's ra- raising growth stage capital for commercialization or a crossover round before they go IPO, um, and that's really the sweet spot of an entre- uh, an investment banker who can really add a lot of value. What is that value? So if, if we now are having people who are listening who are raising that $45 million round or that $60 million round or that $100 million round or that crossover round, what is an investment banker, what value do they bring um, at that point in time versus what we were just talking about on the early stage stuff where, you know, it, it could be a value. It could not be, just depends on the timing, but w- what is the sweet spot value add to a late stage capital raise?
1: I think uh, the biggest value is uh, efficiency in uh, so sort of time, time-wise and resources-wise to identify and engage a lead investor. Um, uh, you know, a late stage uh, venture company may have a, a good network of investors of their own. You know they've been funded until then, and they probably have a good amount of introductions. But if their uh, investors in the prior round are not going to be are, are not able to sub, uh, to subscribe uh, the bigger checks, then they're going to need to go out and find uh, um, a new lead, right? More uh, relevant to the to the stage where they're at. And um, that network may take a lot of time to uh, to yield, uh, you know, a specific uh, uh, lead uh, that is going to subscribe majority of the round or or a significant part of the round, and that um, can be leveraged to create a syndicate, and then uh, you know um, involve uh, other secondary. Uh, participants in in the financing, so that's kind of the first uh, uh, benefit. Uh, filling the round, so not finding the lead, but the syndicate participants may be equally challenging. It may be the opposite, right? Maybe you have one party that knows you appreciate the technology and they're gonna cut a check for half of the of the, your Series B or this, or you know late stage uh, financing, but then you're gonna have to sort of filled around with uh, other smaller investors and uh, disseminate the, the opportunity around uh, the investment community. And, uh, uh, you know, at that level, uh, and at that stage, the CEO has a real has a real job, which is running the business, right? Perhaps a business that is going commercial. And so hiring a professional that has a network and uh, has a, the process skills to to make everything efficient and transparent uh, can be can be a good value add. I would I would uh, add a third element, which is uh, compliance uh, and transparency. Uh, late stage ventures uh, typically are professionally organized. They have a board. They have uh, uh, articulated cap table of investors with uh, different uh, Different rights, different uh, levels of, of preferences or, or, or voting rights, and so and they the CEO has the fiduciary duty to represent all of them, uh, and sometimes it's not easy, right? Especially as you sit at the table with the with a new you know uh, external investors, and you need to negotiate terms. So hiring an investment banking firm is sort of a, a you know, i think enhances the the transparency of the process uh and uh you know the, the ability to execute and, and negotiate favorable terms uh for uh, the existing investors but that are mutually agreeable also with the with the incoming ones so th- these are kind of the three uh, the three advantages of hiring someone like us for uh and, and many other firms for that sake uh, at, at that stage of uh,
2: of uh, capital raising. And, and I'm genuinely curious for myself, and I'm sure whoever is listening to this can get some benefit out of this too. But you know, then, how does that work? I mean, if, if you're identifying or really good at and bringing value of finding leads, creating the rest of the syndicate later stage is really where the sweet spot should be and is for investment bankers. You know, I don't want to call it downtime, but you know, when you're not making calls on behalf of a client that you've taken on to raise these rounds, what what does it look like behind the scenes? When I mean, are is is corporate venture from Boston Scientific waiting for Carlos' call just to say, hey, what's going on? And let's mate. And how, how do we meet each other and know each other? Like, how, do, how does an investment banker make all these connections um, to then bring the value so that they when they sign a client to go raise a Series C of 45 million, they can go, okay, well, I'm going to call Medtronic Corporate Division of Ventures, or I'm going to call um, Endeavor Vision, or I'm going to call whomever Bensana, for example. How does that work? I mean, how do how do investment bankers just network?
1: Um, it's a great question. Um, you know, we network uh, at uh, all the conferences that happen uh, worldwide during the year, whether you know uh, J.P. Morgan or uh, the many other private events that are. Uh, it sort of happen all, almost on a quarterly basis. We also attend a lot of clinical shows. I th- I think specialization is a uh, is a value. You know, we go to the uh, uh, surgery uh, meetings. We have go to the orthopedics meetings, um, and and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, to you know, have direct. Uh, you know contact not only with the entrepreneurs and investors but also with the physicians and you know the uh, the community that uh, is responsible for driving the acceptance of certain technologies and uh, you know that's an invaluable asset you know doctors also are frequently on on the boards you know, on the on the advisory boards of uh, of startups so Th- that is uh, in itself uh, a networking tool, but it's really uh, the knowledge getting, having the credibility to vet uh, the assets, uh, you know, from, from a clinical and, uh, uh, and economic value standpoint. Uh, and the professional investors and the corporate investors specifically value that uh, as well. So they are present at the same meetings and uh, you, know, they, you know, you meet a lot of people there. But then, uh, as you have a pipeline uh, uh, of, of deals and projects during the year, uh, you typically have the opportunity to reach out and uh, you present opportunities, have uh, frequent uh, points of contact during a year, uh, where you, know, you, you keep inquiring, what are you looking for? Uh, picking their brains, Is this interesting for you? And you sort of you know develop a, a map, of priorities or the investment thesis that uh, venture firms uh, want to invest in, right? And uh, the more you establish that relationship, the dialogue and the understanding, the more they're going to be willing to take your next call when you when you have a, a client that wants to raise capital, right? So it's um, it's an evergreen process of trying to elevate uh, not only the breadth of the network, but also the credibility and the, the value add of, uh, you know, giving, putting our, our eyes and uh, diligence process uh, to, you know, to, to promote the investment worth the assets. Uh, so it, it, it's really, a. Uh, Process that never stops, and uh, it's also the exciting part because uh, on the other side of the fence, people change. You know, there are new new investment funds created. There's a personal uh, change with the, within the corporate groups and uh, and whatnot. So you always have to refresh those relationships. And uh, when the CEO of a, of a company or the responsible for venture investments changes, maybe even the the philosophy changes, and so, so it's always interesting to uh, you know, to to start from scratch and and uh, you know uh, and, and build those relationships from from zero.
2: And so, beyond spending all this time and, and effort, like you've been talking about now for this whole entirety of the podcast on on raising capital from an investment banker's perspective, um, when you're not raising capital for companies or not networking, what are the other Focal points, or, or or benefits, or values that an investment banker brings to a med tech company, especially later stage. I mean, is it IPOs and taking in public? Is it mergers and acquisitions? I mean, what other things do, does investment bankers do besides raise capital? And realistically, paint the picture of how much time, and maybe specifically to you, or in general to the investment banking world within med tech, how much of a of a fraction of the percentage is really raising capital for companies versus doing the other stuff like m and and IPOs, et cetera. Paint that picture.
1: My role, I almost exclusively, I would say 95% of my time is focused on uh, exit, facilitating exit events, which may be MA or uh, other uh, strategic commercial type deals. My firm does not touch... Uh, uh, Open market, you know, public transactions like uh, IPOs or, or public uh, equity offerings. Uh, that's, uh, you know, a, a strategic decision for us not to be involved in. and And that's kind of the domain of the of the larger banks, to be fair with you. There are a few big boutiques that cover the med tech sector in, uh, in, in public transactions. It's, it's more, you know, the JP Morgan, the, the Jeffries uh of the world. Uh so my my view is biased, of course, because I I only operate with the private market. Um but yes, these are all services that the companies are going to value when they approach the time of exit, right? When they, it's time to get acquire or go IPO and make money for the investors, which have been uh, maybe with the company for many years. Um, and um uh, you know it's that's an area where if if there's not a ceo that is also a deal maker and an experienced uh, uh, you know, transaction uh professional uh and you know in in the high profile uh, ventures the ceo always tends to be a guy that has done multiple deals in, in the past right mm-hmm. so if senior folks know how to handle a, a sale. Uh, it, it may happen that they said not to hire an investment bank and just uh, go to Medtronic or to Boston Scientific or, or to BD without without any assistance. And they can definitely execute on that. Uh, but there's also a breed of uh, management that don't have that experience, especially first time CEOs. Um, um, I want to say that outside of the specific uh, Uh, experience of the CEO and the management team. Uh, Hiring a banker can be valuable because it sends the message to the market that there is a process going on. And so as an acquirer, if you want to engage with that company and have a chance uh, to acquire uh, them, you need to up your game, be serious about the process and uh, possibly, you know, having to pay a premium which uh, goes to the advantage of, of the sellers and, and their investors, okay? So uh, this is a double-edged sword, uh, but you know, it, building up this process, this discipline and having uh, 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 an investment banker to manage it can be very valuable and generate uh, a multiple uh, exit value uh, versus uh, the scenario where a company goes into, you know, um, individual negotiation without support, without building a process. And uh, uh, there is evidence uh, in the numbers that uh, that is the case. But of course, every case is, uh, it needs to be looked at individually. Uh, so personally, I dedicate 95% of my time on that. Uh, I want to point out that the, the remaining 5% is uh, is not necessarily uh, a share of my deal flow that i specifically dedicate to uh, to, to raising capital that may be on occasion but uh, the the principle is more that all the companies that we represent in an exit uh, are still at uh, inflection points in their journey and uh, as such they always need to be mindful about their bank accounts and uh, they may need to raise more capital even if they are at the cusp of, a, of, a, of an exit of an m and event, right? Because if that transaction doesn't come to fruition they're gonna to need to go to plan B and uh, have the gas in the tank to, to launch the next phase of their, of their story, right? So uh, we always have to be mindful of what is the capital structure of the company? What is their access to capital? And uh, really what's the plan a B and C uh, if, um, so if, if if an exit uh, that is um, amenable to to the shareholders doesn't come to fruition so it's very it's always very important to have both of the of the capital markets
2: so thank you for that and and before I thank you for your time and I'm sensitive to time I want to have two questions that kind of blend right into each other before we let each other go here but um, what do you think about SPACs? And after coming off of an uh, amazing year of 2020 in terms of raising capital for MedTech and just the inertia that happened last year and where we are even this year, where are the capital market slash fluidity in raising capital going to be in the future? Are we going to be seeing a pullback? Just high-level thoughts on where the market's trending towards at this point and thoughts on SPACs. And you can go high-level and succinct as you need to on that one.
1: SPACs are uh, a conduit to raise capital through uh, the public markets. Uh, And as such, they're just a a different way of of raising uh, late stage or commercial stage capital. Um, They've become a very popular tool. Uh, There have been uh, many, many uh, launches of SPACs. Uh, also helped by the good performance of the equity markets uh, that sort of invited the uh, uh, IPOs and uh, made that made that process easy um, so I I value spec uh, for what they can represent next to more traditional investors that may be private equity firms or uh, late stage venture uh, venture capitalists, right? Um, uh, SPACs have, um, um, are more constrained from a uh, uh, time perspective. They have a specific window of time to execute and build uh, uh, build out, uh, you know, acquire a target and, and, and build out their strategy. So uh, they tend to be more risky uh, because, because of that specific factor. But uh, on the other end, you know they're they're public. so they once they're public, they, they may have better access to to additional capital and uh, definitely elevate the profile of, uh, of the companies they acquire. Um, one remark I have is the, that uh, you know specs are not really the primary audience for early stage investors because their mandate is to build, uh, commercial organizations and to grow franchises, right? So there's only a limited amount of their capital that can pro- probably be invested in uh, non-revenue generating uh, assets or, or technology. So, um, but it, that's kind of the same uh, principle, if you will. And I, I comment about what you asked regarding the, the general sentiment. Uh, it, it's it's the same, um uh, consideration that I will make for more traditional sources of capital we it's known that there is a pyramid there's an inverted pyramid right of availability of capital the majority of the uh, institutional capital um, raised by private equities or or um, um, venture firms is deployed with late stage companies um, and the the funnel of innovation gets, you know, more, um, that gets tougher earlier on, uh, you know, a, a, a significantly lower share of these uh, of this capital trickles down to series A or seed rounds or, or even series B, right? So uh, that's kind of the same, the app for the same reason. The, the appetite of investors for technologies that are dearest that have already proven themselves clinically from a regulatory point of view, perhaps they have already uh, hit the market and showed a good prospect for wide adoption. Uh, so, you know, the specs are perhaps a novelty uh, or let's say are kind of a headline uh, tool and in this particular period of time. Uh, but I think they're very sim- similar to other more traditional ways of, of uh, Raising capital. Final comment: I think uh, you know in the last uh, year, year and a half, there have been uh, well. It's, it's not my opinion. It's it's data that shows uh, that institutional investor dedicated to healthcare in general have raised record amounts. So there's a lot of dry powder up there, uh, ready to be deployed in the worthy projects, right? Uh, so. Generally speaking, coping that with the uh, you know good health of the equity markets, uh, which is always a, an uncertainty uh, factor. You know the the, the landscape for capital uh, looks good for healthcare in general and medtech uh, specifically. Um, the key question is how much of that capital availability will uh, be allocated to early stage companies and uh, how can that pyramid uh, you know become a little more balanced and uh, you know to, to make sure that you know promising early stage uh, ideas can become more bankable and, uh, and uh, ultimately accelerate uh, innovation for the entire industry so reziman is going to continue to be a tough job so good luck to all the all the CEOs that have to do that
2: carlos mamilio partner at Elira health thank you very much for your time Uh, Coming on MedTech Money, we greatly appreciate all your wealth of insights and experience that you shared with us today on understanding what it's like to work with an investment banker, who and what an investment banker is and does, and ultimately specific for the MedTech industry. So this is MedTech Money, demystifying raising capital. Thank you again, Carlo.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at projectmedtechpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.